All right, we're live. Welcome to Film Trooper Presents Film Marketing Fridays. And um, I'm going to stop this real quick so you can see my big fat head. Hey, everybody. I'm a fellow Film Trooper. And at Film Trooper, um, I especially the uber independent filmmaker who's going to sell it directly online. And all I try to do is curate and learn from the um, strategies and techniques used by successful online entrepreneurs entrepreneurs, if I can even say the word, um, to see how they sell digital products and how that could be applied when we're selling which is the real big thing here is that film production really is no longer a barrier because anybody can make a film, obviously. I mean, this feature film that I made was made for $500 with no crew, so it was like, okay, yeah, the barrier has been broken, done, done deal then distribution really is no longer a barrier as well because anybody, like this film, you can upload it to, I sell this on Vimeo On Demand or VHX or Distify or Aggregator, it onto iTunes, Amazon, you know, Google Play. So distribution, getting your film out to the whole world is no longer a barrier, which is just have been, that's just amazing to me. So really the only last barrier that we have as filmmakers is marketing which is why I started this uh, live Google Hangout sessions every Friday to try to answer these questions and uh, try to curate the best answers. And I say curate because I'm no expert. I'm just a big enthusiast about this type of things. And by you guys asking me questions, I figured out um, what the best answers could possibly be. But we're in luck today because our guest is Chris Reed. And everybody, you're out in... Um... Yep. Hey, guys. Um... Hi, I'm Chris. So Chris, yeah, Chris is, uh, real quick, we had met over Twitter um, because Chris called, uh, the short of it, he called me out on uh, uh, two episodes ago because I had misrepresented the lawsuit that was going on with the family. Uh, this particular screenwriter and author and doctor had written basically the story for Gravity, sold it to a, um, a division of like New Line, which was an ev eventually acquired by Warner Brothers, who eventually made the movie Gravity. And her book was literally called, literally called Gravity. And she didn't receive that any, I guess, um, revenue or something through the success of the film. So there was this lawsuit about clarify what the lawsuit really meant. And Chris was uh, very good at pointing that out to me. In, in the process of talking to each other on Twitter, um, he mentioned that, he, as he calls himself, he's a recovering digital marketer, and uh, I'll let Chris tell us a bit about his background and, and, and has some really great things to offer today on today's show. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, um, so just a little, like, very short brief on my background is um, I've been working in film and media production for a very long time since I was, you know, really young, and I've helped out on film sets since I was a teenager um, and then I ended up living in London doing like film set E stuff and photo production stuff and then I moved to New York and after a few years of living in New York doing the film thing an artist who I really respect um, and knew from you know just kind of hanging out in places where artists hang out in New York was starting a business based around selling jewelry and we got to talking and I was like hey there's this new thing called 
Twitter and that jewelry business you started that isn't doing well, I think Twitter will help you with it. And he was like, well, I don't know anything about that. And I was like, oh, I do. You can hire me and I will, <laughs> and I will market your business. Um, so I kind of got paid to learn digital marketing working with him and we built a pretty successful little business over a couple of years for him. And then uh, I left and I did a, I worked with Red Bull on the Red Bull Music Academy in New York, which was um, a really huge event and really awesome. And since then I moved on. I've helped, uh, I've done a couple other projects with Red Bull. I've helped some small brands kind of and startups get out there on the internet. And I also do um, to client video production. I direct, you know, digital content and TV ads. Um, so that's me. Yeah, very cool. So um, we're going to take some of that experience. Definitely, you know, like you said, the Red Bull was a big campaign. You mentioned that I think you grew it to like in one month, 50,000, you know, followers on Twitter um, and all that kind of stuff. So um, use, utilizing your experience, we can kind of delve right into the questions because I showed you earlier. It's quite a bit of questions, but um, I think we're all all ready for it. I think people that had submitted questions via Google Plus and Facebook and Twitter. So with that said, I'm going to shoot it over to the slide deck, and then we'll back and forth to answer your questions. Too far down the questions, like it says here, our, today is our community questions. I understand really sort of the three basic elements, any sale or basically any business. I probably should have categorized that as business versus sale, but that's what you're doing in a business. you got to make sales. So you either have a what you're offering, um, addition it out to your customers or your audience, and then you have to have a marketing map that communicates what you're actually selling. So to take that into more detail, a little bit more detail, your product or service must provide a value, right? It has to have something, it has, it has to have worth. And then this comes down to your film. Is your film any good? You know, does it... The means that an audience can easily acquire your product. You know, is your film on the platforms that make it easy for audiences to pay and watch for your film? And hopefully it's a good film. And then marketing equals the form of communication that is in alignment with the customer's expectation of your product's value. And that's important because you might have this uber independent film made, uh, film made you know, but if the customer's expectation is like, I'm used to paying for like Blockbuster at like, $2.99 or $3.99 a rental. And then you're asking me to pay five, ten dollars for this Uber independent film. You know, so you have to make sure that your marketing message is in alignment with what the customers expect from you. Um, and this is something that Chris and I were talking about earlier. It's actually not a it's really about providing value. And we're going to show you this case study here. You alone control whether or not your film has any value. I don't know if anybody's ever heard this film called The Room. It has been called the worst movie ever made. And the difference, the value that it provided, it provided, it was like midnight screenings where audiences came around because they wanted to have a shared experience and they wanted to have a shared laugh. And that's what the difference is. The movie wasn't good, but the value was worth something. And uh, you can, you know, read more about this film at the room, uh, roommovie.com. But I want to 
pop over to before we get into the sort of the what's the next thing? Oh yeah, I want to talk about this unfair advantage because that's what this is, and um, I'm going to stop this um, deck here so you can see my face and go back to Chris. So in your experience, you know, doing digital marketing stuff like that, you've mentioned to me about the unfair advantage, and that's what this is: is like providing value. Um, and does your film provide value, even if it's not a good film, that kind of thing. So if you kind of elaborate that, that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, well, so there's two kinds of... Um, can you guys hear me? It's not doing... I hear you just fine. You sound great. Okay. Um, yeah, so there's basically two kinds of unfair advantages. There's the unfair advantage that your product has, and that, you know, in this case, your film product... Um, and then there's also the unfair advantages that you as the producer or director or filmmaker, however you want to refer to yourself, has. And so basically what that is is it's your point of distinction, and it's the thing that no one else can rival you at. So for The Room, their entire marketing message is that it's the worst movie ever made, and that's their unfair advantage. And... Now, like, no one, and, you know, that was really genius because no one's out there. Everyone's out there going, my movie's really good. Go watch my movie. And they're like, our movie's the worst. <laughs> it sucks. Don't I watch don't, it. Yeah. And people are like, oh, wait, like, and then that message resonates because it's different. So that gives them an unfair advantage. Um, and now they own that space. And now they own the worst movie ever made space. And then so how you kind of just figure out what the unfair advantage of your film is is you look at yourself as a filmmaker and you look at like your audience before you even start making a film you look at the audience and you're like okay what who's out there what is the audience for the uber independent film that I'm going to make and you know the audience for one that I might make is probably different than the audience that you might make because you know we're different people we have different connections we're into different things and it's going to be a niche audience and it should probably be a niche that you have an authentic connection with like you should make a movie about something you are actually into um, yeah because you're going to be in it for the long haul so because <laughs> this, this process takes a really long time um and, you know, if you are doing it for the money and you're making a uber-independent film, you're, you know, you might make some money off of it, but it's probably not worth doing if it's not also for the love. Um, so, you know, you should be in a space where you have an authentic connection, and so that could be one of your unfair advantages, is you're like, I'm the only person making a film that has an authentic connection to this hobby that I have or this niche that I am a part of. Um, and then you also have to look at yourself as the filmmaker and be like, okay, what unfair advantages do I have that can push this film? Like, if my film's a comedy and I am really great, like, and honestly, like, you have to be honest with yourself here. It's like, you're honestly really clever. You're really, like, you're really good at snappy one-liners. Then your comedy film should have a really great Twitter account filled with snappy one-liners. And that way you can kind of show because you want to you need to build trust in your audience. You need to show them that your film is worth watching and worth buying. And one of the best ways to do that is through your content marketing. So again, your comedy film and your Twitter account filled with snappy one-liners, people are like, oh, this guy can make me laugh on Twitter. It's more likely that he can make me laugh in a movie than someone who can't even make me laugh on Twitter. Um, and Twitter's free and his movie costs like, you know, $19.99 or $9.99 or whatever you're selling your movie for. So there's that, or, you know, the other thing is if you're, 
if you manage to get like really great, well-composed shots, and that's the touch point of your movie, and you're managing to do that on a zero-dollar budget, which we all know is incredibly difficult. But like, let's say you have that skill. Let's say maybe you worked, maybe you went to film school for cinematography, maybe you've worked on professional sets, or maybe you're just really talented at that sort of thing. Um, and you can also kind of translate that skill down, and you can do the same really great kind of cinematic feeling shots with your iPhone, and then your film will have this really great Instagram presence, and, you know, you should be referencing the same things and the same moods, and people will be like, wow, this guy's Instagram is really beautiful, and he's, you know, talking with other really influential Instagram photographers, and he's got this movie, and I really like his visual style, and so I trust that that visual style will carry into his movie, I will go pay my 10 or $20 to watch this movie now. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's, there's some good stuff there, and it corresponds to the uh, slide deck, which I'll, I'll jump into right now again. So some really great points in there, so if everybody can see this, and that's what he was saying, the, you, your unfair advantage you have to assess, and you take inventory of what your strengths are, um, because then you have to ask that question. Are your strengths in alignment with your overall film story or your the film's marketing message, which uh, Chris brought up, um, which you brought up, Chris, about the Twitter thing. Like, if you have a comedy and if you have a great bunch of great one-liners and 140 characters or less in Twitter, you're going to show your comedic strength, and that's an alignment, but that's something showing that you have that uh, telling a great joke. And so it is in alignment with eventually what you're selling, which is the uh, your film product. So with that said, right into the user's questions, which we had quite a few, so we're going to answer your questions right now. Dun, 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 dun. First question up, this is actually, this question, and there's two other questions, so they're fairly in the same, you know, genre or the, what, how do you call it, the, the so this one is like, how do I get more viewerships? That's pretty point, you know? Actually, exclamation point. Instead of like a question mark, he was like, damn it, how do I get viewership? And that's from one Liad. I can't spell it. Liad? L-I-A-D? Like, I want to call him Iliad, like the... Oh, I see what he did like there. Like Iliad and the Odyssey. I think that with the one, he little old play there. Very good. So how do I get more viewerships is a question. But this was this sort of the same thing. Um, what would be the best way to get a wider demographic to see, you know, the film when the film itself might steer towards a certain audience? Again, that's like how do you get more viewership outside of their, your targeted audience? And that's from uh, Jake Taylor at the Mellow Man, or sorry, at the Mellow Madman over at Twitter. And then we have the last of this, the questions that kind of came in was audience outside your target demographic when it comes to marketing your film. And that's from Nick Garcia, underscore always Nick. So with that said, that's a big question. Like, well, how do you how do you reach, get a bigger reach? How do you, you know, get more viewerships? You know, that's sort of the big elephant in the room. And we can do it uh, based off the old, um, this old saying we had at uh, Sony PlayStation um, when we're dealing with trying to create cinematic sequences uh, uh, for our clients. We had to tell them, well, you could have it fast, you could have it cheap, but you have <laughs> and And, you know, Hollywood, they have, uh, if they want to make a good marketing campaign and if they, you know, want to have some impact, and they, but they, want, they need to move fast, it's not going to be cheap for them. They're going to have to spend some money. And that's the advantage, the unfair advantage they have over the Uber independent filmmakers. 
But the Uber independent filmmakers, if they can't spend money, then they can't use the word cheap. So you, or I'm sorry, they can't. If they want to be cheap, but they want to be good, they're not going to be able to go fast. And I mean, even with the studio films and all the money that they do have, they kind of get in their own way with that a little bit because they're going for these super broad targets. I mean, when you're in the studio marketing world, people talk about quadrants, and there's four quadrants. There's women under 25, women over 25, men under 25, men over 25. And that's, I mean, they get a little bit tighter with their marketing than that, but that's kind of where they're looking at. And so they're doing things like they're buying billboards, and they're, you know, buying a billboard in Times Square in New York, and 8 million people are seeing it. But if you have a film that really only appeals to, say, girls 16 to 20, yeah, like, a billboard in Times Square might not be the best place to target your marketing, whereas you can talk to those people on Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter, which is where, like, they actually hang out. Yeah, it's definitely... And you can do that for way less money than you can do a billboard in Times Square. So you have to get really smart and targeted um, with your marketing message. So fast, good, or cheap, you got to pick two. Um, again, this whole thing, if you already have a small group or you have a small audience that you have targeted into, again, these the questions that came in, could those people become advocates? And that's sort of what you're trying to get, those true ravenous fans of what you've done. Can they be used to um, help promote what you've done? Um, again, the marketing message then has to become native, as Chris was kind of elaborating on. If, and Chris, if you kind of tell us a little bit more about what this means about being native to the the, the the marketing message being native. Yeah, I mean, so basically, what it means is that your entire I want to I kind of want to introduce the concept of strategic thinking here, um, which is probably one of the most powerful marketing tools there is. Is your um, ability to think strategically, which is basically thinking with the end in mind. So you set your reasonable goal, whatever that is, and let's just say it's I want to make some money back off of my Uber independent film, which, you know, that's a surprisingly difficult thing to do, but it's not unreasonable, so that's my reasonable goal. And that will drive everything I do from the very beginning of like, what am I going to make a film about? I'm going to make a film that people want to watch and will pay to watch. And then, so when you get, and as you go through your whole, every step you take in the process, you should kind of give yourself that thinking of, what is my goal for this action I am about to embark on? Where am I now? What are the, and then the difference between where you are now and where your goal is should give you some key steps along the way that you will take. Um, so let's say so you're, so let's say you finished your film and you're like, okay, I want to gain some more viewership. So you're like, what I need to do is I need to get, I need to communicate my film to people, and how do I communicate my film to the people that actually want to watch it, and how do I not turn them off or scare them away, and how do I know that my marketing is good? Um, and to get into that, I'm going to share with you guys an example of some really terrible marketing that <laughs> I noticed very recently. I'm not as good at Scott at the screen share, so we might, <laughs> so there might be a minute where this doesn't fill up the whole screen. Yeah, All right, so, that. <laughs> uh, yeah so everyone can see this, right? Um, this is wait, bad wait, wait, marketing. Wait, we saw it for a second. Hold on <laughs> Whoops, a second. did it go there away? Go. Yeah, do it again. Are we back? There we yeah, go. We're back. There we're back. All right, yeah. So here's an example of bad marketing that I've run into really recently is Lincoln Motor Company, which, you know, the car of the mafia, 
is doing this <laughs> musical selfie campaign. And the problem with this is Lincoln is a luxury car, and cars are an expensive product that you want to be able to last a really long time, whereas a selfie is the cheapest, most accessible, and most disposable form of content. So obviously that's not really aligned with the with a luxury brand, an exclusive brand. And then we also have to think of like, all right, what's the target audience for a selfie machine? And the you know, who are the people that take the most selfies? And I haven't gone and done rigorous scientific surveys here, but I'm going to say it's girls between the age of 12, 13 to like 22, 23. I'm going to say they're taking the majority of the selfies on the internet, followed by men in that same age range. And I'm also going to say that people between the ages of 12 and 23 are probably buying the fewest Lincolns. <laughs> um, again, I haven't done a rigorous scientific survey, but that's where I'm coming at with my thinking on this. So not only is it not aligned with their brand, but it's not aligned with their target. And then it also adds no value. And, you know, there's this big thing like Seth Godin and a lot of other great marketers talk about, you know, your marketing needs to add value. And the basic point there is if no one would pay for it, it has no value. So if I'm not going to buy your, and I wouldn't buy a musical selfie machine, I, I very well might buy a Lincoln in the near future, um, but I'm definitely not going to pay for a musical selfie machine, and I don't really think I know anyone who would, so therefore it doesn't have a value and it doesn't add it. And then I want to share with you guys an example of the best marketing I've seen recently, which is the Robert Downey Jr. giving the Iron Man bionic arm to this kid. And this is such great marketing that when CNN reported it, they reported it as news. <laughs> that is some good marketing. <laughs> uh, you know, this is, I don't know why CNN thinks I'm in Atlanta or Charlotte or Washington, D.C., <laughs> because I'm in New England right now. But um, when I grabbed this screen cap off of CNN's website, they thought I was in Atlanta. And so but this is really great marketing, and it's marketing that's so good that people have confused it with news. And let's kind of walk through why it's amazing. It's perfectly on target for Marvel, who's, you know, funding it. So that's who the marketing is for. It's perfectly on target for Marvel because Marvel is a brand that's all about superheroes. And what Robert Downey Jr. did is he gave a kid who is missing most of his right arm a working robotic Iron Man arm. And they partnered with some, you know, leading medical technology guys to do that for this kid. And... You know, Marvel's about being superheroes. Robert Downey Jr. just became this kid's hero in a really big way. So there's perfect alignment between the message of we make movies about superheroes, we just did a real-life a real life heroic thing for this kid. Um, and the robotic arm that was designed was specifically looks like Iron Man's arm. So that's yeah. why it was perfect alignment. It's, a, it's an Iron Man arm. It's in perfect alignment. And Robert Downey Jr. the whole time stays in character as Tony Stark which is another great alignment because now he's acting the whole time and he's improvising and it showcases how great of an actor Robert Downey Jr. actually is because he's able to do this really amazing thing for this kid in this highly emotional situation and still play Tony, you know, play Tony Stark as if it was scripted on the page in front of him. So there's all kinds of alignment up and down the line for that brand, for that movie, um, 
And, you know, it's also really subtle when you watch kind of the clip, like, yeah, it's the Iron Man arm, everyone knows about it. Um, Robert Downey Jr. introduces him as Tony Stark. Most people know Tony Stark is, you know, Iron Man. Um, they, they have some little metal cases as you watch the video that say Iron Man on it, and that's all of the branding. It's not it's very well placed, it's not obnoxious, so it doesn't feel intrusive in the life of the viewer. Um, and it adds tremendous value, and it adds tremendous value in a lot of ways. It's obviously tremendously valuable to this kid who got a robotic arm where he had no arm. So there's a great tremendous value to him. There's a tremendous value to society because it helped advance some medical research. So, you know, if any of us happen to lose an arm, there's more money going into research to replace it. And it's valuable to all of us watching it because it's entertaining. And it is a really entertaining video, and it's cute and charming, and people pay for entertainment. I mean, that's the theory we're all working on when we're trying to sell movies, is that people pay for entertainment. Um, so that's why that is great marketing and why the Lincoln musical selfie thing is not so great marketing. Yeah, in so it's fantastic you brought that up because... Um, because most people are going to think, like, oh, that's cool. I mean, they have big budgets and stuff like that. So how does, like, an uber-independent filmmaker, you know, even match with that? So let me uh, go back to this slide here real quick and um, and keep rocking here. So so that that's where you talk about, like, marketing message becomes native. Um, another way to talk about being native is just simply understanding, like, how people talk on how what how people react on Twitter is maybe different than Instagram because obviously Instagram is all photos you know so the language that's being spoken on these platforms you have to understand um, what works and then speak natively you don't want to just take one marketing campaign like a Facebook post and blast that into Twitter Instagram Tumblr whatever Google Plus because it may not translate correctly you know you might you might miss the mark so you have to each platform become native in that respect in alignment and here's the here's really the answer that I think people are looking for when uh, on top of all this stuff is really important to understand but really for any uber independent filmmaker to get better views to get more views onto their film or to get to branch out from their niche audience to go to answer these three specific questions you need to partner up with an influencer who has the audience you want and in business they call it joint venture um, and the reality, you have to add value to the. You're either going to add value or you're not. And so, as Chris was uh, talking about in terms of the Iron Man um, campaign, there was so much value on top of value. You know, definitely mark uh, the, the marketing machines to get Marvel gets you excited about the, the Avengers two coming out. Uh, the uh, philanthropic. Um, efforts of this this the study in terms of robotics for uh, amputees you know all this stuff just was value on top of value on top of value where Chris like you pointed out on the Lincoln stuff didn't offer any value on top of any value and so for us uber independent fil filmmakers we have to decide like well my, my film would too bad I don't have that audience like say somebody is a you know, really popular in in marathon running or something like that, and they have like this uh, great blog. They have a huge audience, and you wrote and you made like a documentary on marathon running, and you're just hoping that wish that you can get th that film to that same audience. So how do you do it without being really pushy? You know, 
and so that's why we talk about you've got to partner up with these influencers and you've got to offer value and you only you can decide uh, taking uh, inventory of what you know what unfair advantage you have to give yourself the best fighting chance to expound upon your um, your your basically reach your film to to get more looks and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, and um, I'm gonna jump in here for a yes. minute. Um, so I've done a lot of work with influencers. I think one of the great things about the digital era is it allows people who make cool stuff to access people who are good at talking about it because, you know, just because we're good at making movies doesn't mean we're the best at selling them. And, yeah, we have to work on that. We have to train that skill if we want to be successful. But we can also partner with people that are way better because they're influencers. So say I have a an ultra-marathon running documentary and I want some major ultra-marathoners to share it with their network. How do I do that? Um, and we know we did this thing at Red Bull when we had the Red Bull Music Academy and we really wanted to bring the New York City music scene out to our events. And we wanted to do that in a way that didn't seem like Red Bull was this big, giant brand spending a lot of money. Because, you know, music people, they're like film people. Like they really care about it being authentic. They care about it not looking like they've sold out. And so, you know, these are the things you can learn from the big guys. Is One, be as authentic as possible. Approach people with things that they care about. Approach a marathon runner with your film about running marathons. Don't approach them with your film about how awesome deep fried stuff is. Because <laughs> that's not an authentic connection and that's just going to piss them off. I mean, which might be your marketing tactic is make them angry and they'll tweet about hating it. But so first you want to be as authentic as possible and you want to approach people. Um, the other thing you want to do, so if you're approaching an influencer, A, you just have to at some point, you just have to ask. You just have to make that approach. Obviously, if you can get introduced to them by a mutual acquaintance, that's better than just shooting a cold email into their inbox. But even if you can't, shooting a cold email into their inbox is better than being like, oh, that guy would never open my email. Because you're right, they'll never open the email you don't send. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, they might open, you know, there's things you can do to make it more likely to open the email. You know, maybe try to engage with them on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever they seem the most open. See if you have mutual friends or other mutual interests. But at some point, like, you do just have to get over it and you have to ask. Um, and then you ask as authentically as possible. You just come at them, and if you seem like a genuine human being who wants to connect with them on a genuine human level, and you don't seem like some dude who's just trying to push his film, so they'll push it for you, and you don't want to pay them, because uh, a lot of them get paid for this, <laughs> then they'll be more likely to do it for you. And then, of course, another thing is you want to use your unfair advantage here. Like... You know, all these influencers get tons and tons of emails, and they get lots of emails that look very much the same. One of the things we did with the Red Bull Music Academy is we had access to some really amazing graphic designers um, at one of the best graphic ad agencies in New York, Doubleday and Cartwright. Um, and so we had them make these awesome posters, and we sent these influencers packets of posters. Obviously, we didn't just mail it to them. We talked with them first. We're like, hi. We sent them an email and be like, hi, we want to mail you this poster. You know, you might not have access to the best design agency in New York, but maybe you are a good graphic designer. Like, maybe that's your day job. You can do that. You can make an awesome poster and you can reach out to them and be like, hey, I made a movie about running marathons um, and I just want to send you the poster to my movie about running marathon. Oh, and by the way, here's a link where you can watch it on this private, private Vimeo for free because I think you'd like it and I just want to authentically share it with you because I think you're cool. 
Um, and that's going to get you a lot further than being like, hey, will you please just tell your people about my movie for me, please, <laughs> because I really want them to buy it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. So the, there's a tip, like, says to be authentic and asking. Um, so to, to roll with this whole thing about you wrote you, you have a mar uh, a documentary marathon running, and there's a several influencers or bloggers that have a large audience that you know that you could pay you know if but if you don't have money to pay, but what can you do to use your uh, advantage unfair advantage is and what does it mean to provide value to an influence influenced maybe they have a book you know maybe they wrote a book and that's part of the thing that's on their blog you know like you know my experience with the Boston Marathon or whatever it might be. If you're somebody who becomes the advocate for their, whatever they sell on their site, so this influencer, like, God, if I can get in front of that audience, how can you help supersize effort for this particular person? Like maybe you're always, they know that you're always tweeting about their book. Maybe they know that you're always talking about it on Facebook. You know, they're seeing like you're, you're constantly advocating. And if you can try to help, you know, gather on, um, you know, then you have like an end. They know who you are and you haven't asked for anything. You've just been offering help. So then you can also is the ask, but you can ask like, hey, so I had made this film, but I was curious, you know, you're asking me if this, like, do you have any advice, just quick one tip advice of like how I could definitely get it to more people or something, or how do I get it to these specific... It's kind of like a, a side angle way of like saying, instead of like, hey, I'm a big fan of yours, can you please check out my film? It's, a, it's more of like, people, there's something about being asked a question and asking your advice that people go, oh, you want my, uh, I'll be a mentor to you real quick, here's my advice for you, you know? And then they, and what happens is it might force them to look at your trailer or your poster art or something, and give your give them your two cents. And what happens is you start a dialogue, and then if push you about it, there's an inadvertent way that you can get in to to maximize your time with these influencers. And the reason why, again, why you want to find who the, you want to partner up with them is because that's the fastest way when you have no money and no connections to get your work, if it has value, to these people that have already spent years building up you know, an audience and building up uh, influence over this, the audience that you want. And so that was probably to answer the question as best we can in terms of how do you get more viewerships, um, how do you get, you know, break out of your niche audience and go to a wider demographic. Those are sort of the of how even the big guys do it, but this is how you can do it on, um, you know, an independent style online. But um, anyhow, yeah, and um, I'm back now, by the way. I, I saw you drop that. Yeah, I don't know if you guys noticed. Um, I, for some reason, if anyone wants to provide some value to me, Chrome crashes on my MacBook like nobody's business, but I don't <laughs> know why. Um, so if anyone wants to, you know, add some value to me and tell me how to fix that, that would be great, um, and I'll, I'll do something for you. But I think um, before we move on, I think that asking a question thing, that's really great, and you can... You know, I've used asking questions of people like major entertainment lawyers who are executive producers, and I've reached out with a question to them and gotten them to talk to me and open to dialogue. And now we're talking about 
other projects that I have in development that, you know, I you ask for advice, you get money. You ask for money, you get advice. So that's, you know, kind of a takeaway <laughs> there. And, um, you know, just before we move on, another really great way, this costs money, but not a lot, um, another really great way to kind of reach your niche or break out of your niche is through super targeted um, advertising. And, you know, there's lots of people out there who can get really tactical with you and can tell you, you know, if you want to use Google AdWords, if you want to use Facebook, well, you can Google that. Um, but what you really need to know when you're doing super targeted advertising is that your creative, your ad copy, and, you know, your picture, what goes in, what makes your ad has to be really general. Like, if I had an alternate into Uber fil an Uber-independent film and I wanted to target Scott with an ad, and I had a Facebook ad and, you know, had targeted it to Scott and it was popping up on his feed and it said, hey, Scott, you like movies made for under $5,000? You should check out Blank, a film about nothing by Chris Reed. Like, that's creepy. That knows too <laughs> much about him. And, like, you, you know these things about your audience because you can, you know, choose your targeting based on what they like and you can choose, you know, stuff like that. That's creepy. Scott's not going to like that. He's going to be like, whoa, this guy knows way too much about me. Um, but if I have an, uh, an ad where the copy is more general and it's just like, um, you know, blank, a film about nothing by Chris Reed made for almost nothing, Scott will be like, oh, I, you know, have a podcast and I talk about uber-independent film all the time and this one's popping up on my Facebook. I have discovered a new uber-independent film. Let me look at that and if it's good, if it's adds value, I'm going to share my uber-independent film with my network of people who are interested in uber-independent films. And um, by the way, that's, I don't have a film called Blank about nothing. <laughs> that was just an example. Um, you so actually, <laughs> you can feel free to go make a film called Blank about nothing if you want. I'm not. That's not actually a thing. Did you actually brought the really great point, which is the um, discovering the mar the way you craft your marketing messages and stuff like that. It, it, the The marketing effort is really creative, and if you dive into it, I mean, filmmakers should not be shy about it or scared about it. It's going to be another skill that's going to be have to be added on to all those. Filmmake, general filmmaking skills that you've learned over the years. So the message, your artwork, your videos, your animated GIFs, or whatever it might be, to allow your audience to feel like they, like you said, stuff as opposed to being hammered over the head with a marketing message. That was great stuff. I'm going to keep going on with um, real quick the uh, questions because we do have we have quite a bit to still get through, and uh, everybody can see this. We have a question from Jane McConnell at Jane McConnell on Twitter. She says, uh, "Ask what guarantees does traditional film marketing provide in a splintered, highly segmented marketplace for on-demand web-only film content?" And I, let me see here. What did I put into this thing here? Um, oh, this is where it leads to permission marketing. So her question is like, well, "How does traditional mar film marketing, when you have such basically niche audiences?" So, you know, how does traditional marketing even work? Well, it doesn't really. I mean, we're going to go into permission marketing. Permission marketing was coined by Seth Godin, and he has so many books. He's like uh, an entrepreneur, a, uh, a uh, you know, tremendous marketer, just somebody who has a lot of great information to talk about. So that's permission marketing. We could talk a little more about that. And, again, 
Uh, value versus volume. And I want to talk about value versus volume and permission marketing real quick. So, um, well, I hear your. Do you hear me? I hear an echo on yours. Chris, Chris. Um, I hear you fine. I'll try to echo less. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. I don't really know what's going on, but okay. I'll try to. I'll try to be less echoey. Um. So we can go into like um, what permission marketing the. Again, the simplest way to think about it is traditional marketing of the studios is to push, to shout at you, to interrupt your your viewing habits, your media advertisements. Um, we're used to that in, in television. You're watching your show. Ah, dang it. There's a commercial break. The DR, TiVo was affected. We got over that. And some marketers like, well, okay, well, how do we interrupt them again? Online, you remember the old days of banner ads popping up left and right? They're still around. Is to interrupt your experience. And Seth Godin was saying the new ways to do this, to market to people, is you have to have the you have to provide them value, willing to accept um, um, whatever marketing message you're presenting to them. Case in point, Chris brought up the Iron Man uh, bionic arm for the kid. It was done in such a way the story was interesting that if we went down we went down we'd be okay if you put a little ad say Avengers 2 coming out. So, oh, hey, Chris. Yeah, I'm still here. I think a big thing about permission marketing and adding the value versus volume thing becomes really important and Permission marketing, you know, this new form, this non-traditional form of marketing is basically the only thing that the uber-independent filmmaker has access to them, which is good because it's super effective. Um, and the most effective version is your email list, which is, you know, why Scott has he gives away his free gear guide, which adds value to his community because people would pay, probably not a lot, but people would pay for a gear guide to make a film for under $5,000. He gives it away, he gets your email address. That email address is of value to him because that's your most, um, in marketing speak, we have a term called conversion. It means buying the thing you're selling. That's the most, you get the highest conversion rate from email addresses than you do from basically any other form of permission marketing. And so now, so let's say you go out and you have a cool way and you collect a whole bunch of email addresses and you're like, cool, now I have a MailChimp or a constant contact list and those are the ones that uber independent filmmakers should be using because they're cheap um, and they're good. Maybe I have a MailChimp or a constant contact list and I've got like, you know, a few thousand people on it. I've got, you know, 2,000, 3,000 people. Um, so like, great, now I'm going to email them, please buy my movie. And <laughs> they're going to they're gonna go into their Gmail and they're going to filter you and you're going to go straight to their spam box. Uh, because no one, because you're not adding value, you're adding volume, and no one wants a higher volume of email. Yeah, but, like no one wants that. You know, um, but I want, but everyone wants more valuable emails. And I read a lot of people's marketing emails, whether they're other filmmakers, other film blogs. I read a lot of you know marketing emails from business people. Because um, I see filmmaking as a business, I see creative work as a business, and I see you know myself as a business person on my own. Um, and there's some I read; they email me every day, and I read them every day because they add great value to me. I like their point of view. And so, how do you do that with your film? Let's go back to the marathon documentary um, 
let's suppose that we've got a documentary on marathon running. If you've made a documentary on marathon running, chances are you know a lot about marathon running. Um, I'm actually a runner. I would really like to get emails in my inbox helping me learn to be a better runner. And if you had a film about marathon running and I had subscribed to your email list and you were giving me like tips on running techniques because I don't have a running coach um, and you know like things that you'd be like you know this is something you can check yourself this is how you can avoid injuries as you push from your 5k to your 10k distance or you know whatever it is that you really know and that you can honestly add value to these people and again in alignment to what your movie's on so you know if you have a marathon running movie you probably you at least learned a lot about marathon running in the process of making that movie share that with people who are interested in marathon running. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, like you said, just because you have somebody in email list, um, your job is to... Your job is to provide value in a, in a wonderful transformative experience within that uh, space of email. And, and then jumping on uh, what volume versus value too, into not only email, but just like the whole business model of filmmaking or film sales if because if Hollywood they run off the volume sort of business parameter because they have to sell a lot of transactions they have to sell a lot of units to generate a lot of transactions to make up their money you know and the uber independent filmmaker won't be able to do that so you can't play the volume game but you can play the value game and the value game is essentially this is really the secret sauce is for uber independent filmmakers our films are nothing more than an advertisement for that's that we're going to sell something more expensive, like a hundred dollar product. So the question you have to ask yourself is like, is my film to that? Is it only uh, worth like three dollars, four dollar rental? Uh, is it only worth a Starbucks coffee? Um, how can I create my film to generate a hundred dollars in sales uh, for one transaction? And you do that w by having your your film be this advertisement. For something of greater value, and like you know, Chris was pointing out, if you're a marathon running documentary, what other great value does your film sort of spur conversation that you could sell? Like, here's the latest running shoe that you get a 50% discount instead of spending 250, 300 dollars, you get it only for 100 dollars. Film with app. So, um, oh shoot, hey. Sorry, buddy. Sorry, buddy. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, and well, this comes down to uh, this comes down to knowing your market as well is knowing what else you can sell them because even even really big businesses don't only sell one thing. Red Bull doesn't only sell energy drinks. Red Bull sells tickets to their Red Bull events. Red Bull, you know, has media content. Red Bull sells T-shirts. Um, like, and there's no reason why you can't take these lessons you're learning from large companies and do them on your own. And I mean, like, George Lucas, who is probably the person who got the richest off of filmmaking without being a studio executive ever, straight up says it. He says, I made movies, I sell toys. And so, like, you know, you know your audience and you have to do, you, you know, because in the uber-independent film world, we're making films about things we have an authentic connection to. So chances are that if people share one of your niches, they share many of your niches. And so I know about my consumer because my consumer is 
basically me and my friends and, you know, expanded to a wider group, like, I know that I can sell my consumers fairly expensive t-shirts as long as they are very well designed because the people that are, you know, that people that come from the sphere of influence that I come from really care about their t-shirts. It's just a thing that we do. And so... I know that I can probably sell my target market like $40 to $50 t-shirts, but I also know that I can't sell my target market a coffee mug at any price. Like, it could be $0.99. Cents. They're not going to buy it. They don't care about buying coffee mugs. Other people will be able to sell coffee mugs like Stacks, like DFA Records, um, LCD, Sound System, James Murphy's record label, James Murphy told me he makes more money off coffee mugs than he does off music. And James Murphy is a rock star. And you'll hear that. You'll, yeah, you'll hear that all the time. Like um, what we think, like a musician or a filmmaker, like the, you know, or George uh, Foreman uh, made all his money. The boxer made his all his money off the Foreman grill. You know what I mean? So it's like because he was had celebrity status, he had built something prior. Built, um, when it comes time to sell a product. You know, that's where they, yeah, make, that's the where they make the cash. So it's something to think about something in terms about of film, being advertising. Yeah, advertising. Um, um, oh, hey, Chris, oh, are hey, gonna, Chris, are going to... I hear my echo hear coming my through. Echo. And then I'll, I'll, and then I'll, I'll, I'll um, unmute you. Oh, thanks. thanks. <laughs> so what you'll do is, like, hey, do is like, hey, go ahead and go mute ahead yourself, and yourself when you're not on, but when you're about to talk, just unmute it. I hear this echo coming through your line there. Rocking. Okay. So we're going to keep going. The, this next question right here is that's um, a good one. Let's see here. This is from Asia Talbert at Asia Talbert on Twitter. She says, "I'm from Canada, so I was wondering if you review of any particular differences between the indie filmmaking process in Canada versus the U.S. that I should note." So with that said, um, there are let's just but there's sub subset in industries. You have the Hollywood professors that pretty much get like 90 press. I mean, that's kind of what we film is the Hollywood's, um, you know, machine pumping out these massive, you know, movies. But then there's the indie Hollywood, which is kind of like your festivals and your press. So all the press that revolves around these festivals, uh, um, Cannes Film Festival, Sundance, Toronto, whatnot, and those are sort of like the award-winning. Uh, dramas and documentaries that you're going to hear about Oscar time. But there is actually another indie Hollywood at the film markets. And this is what the press really talks about. It's not part of the regular blogosphere. Um, I just had this great interview with Scott Kirkpatrick, who's the director of distribution over at Mar Vista Entertainment. He just wrote a book uh, helping screenwriters get their scripts noticed um, by Hollywood better. And he was expa basically explaining that there's this whole other subset industry that really drives a lot of like 80% of Hollywood. And these are the films that you see being brokered on channel, live channel. Um, you know, these are the action stars of, of, you know, the 1980s or something like that that still have a huge um, pull internationally. Um, what you don't see in this world of film markets, you won't see dramas, you won't see comedies, because comedies don't translate well from, an, like, American comedy that has a lot of American references and has a lot of witty dialogue, don't necessarily translate to um, markets internationally across the world. Uh, many years ago, the number one 
comedic star of all you know of all markets was Rowan Atkinson, and because he doesn't say anything, a lot of his um, performances were all physical comedy. So it was a universal comedy that people could understand. Um, so in that world of this world of film markets, you're going to see like family entertainment, um, you know, Christmas films, um, you know, what uh, Scott Kirkpatrick calls like women in peril, you know, the Lifetime movies type things, and your action films, you know. And he was mentioning like the horror market right now. Unfortunately, the horror films just oversaturated. Just like there's just way too many. But that's just in terms of what the market has to deal with. And then you have the international indies, which a lot of um, international states or the state-funded or government-funded, uh, the films that you see get to like the Oscar nominations. A lot of that's actually come um, the actual state itself because uh, they want to display like their country um, has um, high levels of filmmaking talent and skill. Um, but then the rest of us, we live in this world of what we call the uber independent filmmakers which is like we're raising private capital, uh, investment money, or crowdfunding money, or we save money, we made it for super cheap, and then we're using direct digital distribution as our method. So about um, the difference between like Canada and the US uh, that, they, that she would need to know is like if you're going to be playing in any of these, um, if you're going to be playing, whoops, let's go back to this one real quick, sorry. If you're going to go, if you're going to be playing in the indie world, know that are you playing in the film market world? Are you playing in the festivals to get the press? Are you working in a state-funded level, or are you truly an uber independent filmmaker working direct digital distribution? If that's the case, then it doesn't really matter where you live because um, you know the internet has global access, and maybe your your only goal is to just get in on Netflix. And just recently, good God, you know, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Netflix just announced that they're looking to, to roll out a different business model by just offering straight buyouts for certain films. So they bought this one film for like $12 million, which was like twice the budget of this particular film. And that's it. No back end, nothing like that. It's like a straight buyout. So that could be a whole different thing that's going to happen over the next few years. So the whole parameter... Uh, Tasha's, uh, or her oh, questions. Oh, questions. Um, um, and yeah, before we move on, I just yeah. want to uh, jump in on that. Um, I want to jump in on that too. Like at the state-funded level, when you get outside of America, I've never um, tried to fund a movie in Canada, but I've worked on indie films in the UK when I used to live in London. At the state-funded level in Canada, in the UK at least, and from what I hear from friends of mine who live and work in Canada. Um, that there is higher access to grant money, to media foundation money, and you know, just like your inf just like your influencer will not will ignore all the emails you don't send. You get zero dollars from the grants you don't apply for. So, <laughs> you know, if you think you have a chance, put in the effort and go for these grants, especially if you live in a more grant happy place or you know or if you're doing documentaries which tend to be more grantable or you have you know if you have an unfair advantage where you are more likely to get a grant use that unfair advantage yeah that's a good point so to hopefully answer your question the what world are you playing in are you you know is your film project going to be more along the lines that could be attractive to uh, state grants or government grants or is something to, you know that 
Toronto Film Festival and so on. Um, up in Canada, the, if you want to check uh, crafttruck.com, uh, I think it is, they also have a, a podcast called Craft Truck, but they have a whole thing called Business of Film with Jesse, I forget his last name, I think it's all very Canadian uh, central. And he's always dealing with the independent film questions. So you might want to check out that podcast called The Business of Film, and it's very Canadian-focused. But hopefully that helps a little bit knowing kind of what world you're dealing in. Like if you've got a family entertainment type thing, then you might be perfect for the film markets and that type of world. But if you have like a drama, then you might need to look at film labs or state-funded grants. And so, um, Or if you're straight uber-independent, like just by yourself, then you just got to learn the world of direct digital, digital <laughs> direct digital distribution, which essentially is anybody online selling anything on uh, any digital product. So that's a whole different world that you need to look into in terms of uh, how you're developing your project. And um, while we're on the subject of genre, you you really have to be careful with your genre. Like, okay, so you know, let's say that you're like, all right, so I looked at this, and the world I'm in is the um, you know, I'm going to win South by Southwest, I am going to go win Sundance, I'm going to go win Cannes, um, so I'm going to go make a drama. And it's like, well, okay, um, you're right, your, you're, you know, meaningful drama would be more likely to win those festivals, but the drama genre requires really great acting talent, and it requires, it basically requires you to have some name actors who are actually good talent in there. So if that's not something that's accessible to you, you should maybe look at starting with a different genre and kind of building to the point where you can go out to that major festival winning drama, which is your dream film. Or, you know, if you're like, if you're looking at, you just kind of have to know what's accessible to you. And again, it's strategic thinking, it's working backwards. Um, because you kind of have two options when you're making a movie you can raise a reasonable budget to make the movie that you want to make, or you can make a movie that you can reasonably afford to make, and you kind of have to have an honest assessment of where you are and what you have access to before you even start the process of getting into what kind of film am I going to make, what world do I want to play in. Yeah, and you know, you're talking about strategic thinking. I mean, if you do some, some take some time to look at like what films that you admire, and really look at their trajectory towards success. Um, Whiplash was a big thing. That was a short film that did really well because, and maybe, and then had connections already through Sundance. Um, any of those major festivals, you, you have to nurture, you have to get in at some ground level to some extent um, with some work prior to essentially get grandfathered in to have a better fighting chance. A lot of those people from Sundance sometimes are part of the film. Sundance Lab, and Tribeca now has a film lab. Um, so they're nurturing uh, filmmakers and putting them in the right place and with the right connections so whatever work they have, they can feature in festival at the festival at, at its best. You know, it's, uh, it's, all, it's always the outlier. The press seems to on the dream of, like, this film was made in a garage up you know, accept it, and all the dreams come true. That really that rarely really happens. So, so. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, well, I, I mean, I'm going to say something like, that's a lie, and I think one of the, like, anytime someone's like, I made this movie in my garage, 
with no money and it got distributed by a mini major or a major studio. Like, it's a lie. They didn't make that film for $7,000 in Mexico City. They made that film for $7,000 in Mexico City and then took it to a studio's post-production house and put it on their million-dollar equipment and used their very skilled, very expensive technicians to basically remake the entire movie so it could be sold. So, well, now that I've gotten that rant out of the way, the other thing I wanted to say is, as we were talking about, like, the festival world, and you were kind of getting to a really important point where it's all about connections, and, you know, I hear a lot of things from people being like, yeah, I know filmmaking is all about connections, but I don't have any connections, and it's like, so go make some. You know, you don't, you get... You get zero, like you have to build a network. You have to go out and get connections. And you know, maybe you don't live in New York or LA. Maybe you don't even live in a city at all. Maybe you're in a small town somewhere. There's always things you can do. You can get on Twitter. You can get on the internet. You can join conversations that are already happening. You can add value there. You know, you can get on LinkedIn. You can see who you know knows who, and you can ask for introductions. There's always ways that you can get connected. You can go to your local film festival and meet other filmmakers. You know, you can go to a local acting class and meet people that want to act. There's no, if you understand how important connections are in the industry, which you should, because they are one of the most important things, there's really no excuse to not go out and make them at whatever level is accessible to you whether that's, you know, getting into a major festival or going to an acting class in your local city or getting on Twitter and joining the conversation. Yeah, and a lot of people, you know, sometimes will volunteer at a festival and um, you just kind of you want to get in good graces with sort of the decision makers um, and then always figure out what the incentive, incentive is for everybody involved and where you can provide your value. But in terms of that dream, and unfortunately that's sort of, what all of us have been living with, and it, it every generation it happens. It's sort of like the you've heard about the pyramid schemes, you know, <laughs> these sales things. Like the same uh, ugly monster sort of pops up every ever. Sorry, I bumped this thing again. Every every so often, um, and because it's selling the dream, and that's and it's you know this in marketing, it's like sell the sizzle, not the steak. So don't get too caught up in it. Definitely do your homework to see reverse engineer, like really how did these films become successful and like where, where, what's the common denominator. And a lot of it is because they can only get so far without help. They need help. They need that person to get that introduction. I, I have a great example actually. If you, um, at Film Trooper, I run this podcast and you can be listened to on iTunes, but I interviewed um, Oren Pelly. happened to the experience of making that film and you know although it was a, um, uh, the right place at the right time but even uh, Orrin admits there were so many little things that had to happen like there's an element of luck that has to happen to make those things those outlier uh, stories blow up I mean the reality is is like like I said um, with this particular situation just because super successful doesn't mean everybody else after that see the same success it just doesn't happen 
So just something to keep in mind. But I'm going to keep going on the uh, questions as we we hit hit the hour mark, and hopefully we can wrap up in another half hour here. Uh, let's see here. Um, go back to this. Okay, cool. Oh yeah. So this is two questions here. You can see this. Um, when you have a film with no stars or no uh, or no names, but a good story, what is the best way to market it? And that's from Olu Yomi uh, Osana at Ola the Scribe. <laughs> so I probably butchered your name so badly, o Olu. So I pr apologize. But this is a good question. At the same time, it's very similar to this particular uh, from Fion at FMJ Rain, which is first time to do a film. So it's basically, look, I have got very how do I best mark? What should I do? I forget. Oh, it's all about your execution. Um, so what else is here? Oh, yeah. So it's all about your execution, and you want to take an inventory of what your strengths are. That's what you heard Chris and I talk about in the entire show so far, um, knowing what value and what uh, unfair advantage you can offer. And then you want to make sure that it has some sort of alignment with what your film story is or your film's message is. And what do we have here? Okay. So we can quickly answer that a little bit more. Like when you're starting out, especially if you don't have a, a star, again, genre helps. I guess you know, the horror genre always works best when you don't have any st stars, obviously. Um, and just because you want to have a good story, we, we saw the case, the, the, the film case, uh, or film case study of The Room, being the worst film ever made, had that unique selling proposition that made it successful on parameter. Um, stars. What the reason people like goes why they need stars is because there's five obstacles to the sale, and this is comes from Zig Ziglar. Um, he says the customer has no need, there's no hurry, uh, there's no desire. Um, uh, was it? There's no trust, and I'm forgetting the last one. But the the trust is the big one because when you don't have any stars in your stars film, the last one is no money. Thank you. Um, no money. Pricing is. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> no money. So, but the big one, the no trust, is why people have stars. So when you're looking through uh, or a red box or whatever it is. You see a star that you've noticed, an actor that you're familiar with. There's a familiarity, sort of subconscious aspect of trust. Like, okay, if this particular star, but if you if you see poster design that does, you're probably less likely it. You know, if if both if two films look similar, so the. So your barrier, as any time anybody starting out, is to help that customer overcome the trust factor, which is why we go back to permission marketing, is because you need to be authentic, as Chris has pointed out, so that you, the filmmaker, are going to be the trusted advocate for your film. So people only can trust you if they know you. First, they got to know you, and they got to then like you before they trust you. And if they have those three things in place, know, like, and trust, then they more likely will buy from you, and um, and that's how you would market. And you have to again strategically analyze what your strengths are and overcome those barriers. And so that's really the value of what a star has. It gives you legitimacy. 
Um, if you go to a film festival, if you're getting prominent reviews, then those little laurel leaves that go onto your film, that gives it sort of social proof. It gives it sort of validity that this could be trusted. So if you don't have any of those things in place, you didn't go to a film festival, you didn't have a, a, a star in place, um, what other ways can you generate that trust so the audience is more likely to accept the marketing that you're selling them? So that's something you, so have, that's to something you have to think about. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's... Um, there's kind of an interesting psychology behind asking what to do because it's a question that given the information there neither Scott nor I can answer what to do we can't tell you who you should how you should be tweeting how often you should be tweeting we can't really get down into the tactical level with that little information because you know when I work with digital marketing clients we do a lot of research like a lot of research to kind of determine what exactly we should be doing. But what we can do for you is we can share, you know, strategies, these kind of bigger picture things, and then you can take them and you can apply them to your specific case. And you can kind of figure out the tactics from the strategy, which is like kind of a more difficult way to get into that strategic thinking. But once you see these strategies and how they work, you can apply them to your case. So that's why, you know, you know, that's why we can't tell you exactly what to do in your specific case unless, you know, we do all of the work that goes into that and then that gets <laughs> to something where now you've taken, you know, a lot more than an hour, an hour and a half of my time and we need to, you know, that's a different discussion about time and value. Um, but we can share these strategies with you and we can give them to you for free, but it's really up to you to activate them. And, you know, that's why to me it's really useful to look at what the big brands with all the money are doing and look at if what they're doing is working and what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong because you want to dissect it. You want to figure out the tactics behind it just as how you would, you know, watch Interstellar and dissect the cinematography behind it and find how you can apply that to you shooting a film probably on your DSLR or your, you know, Canon C series or whatever it is that you have access to. You want to look at the people who are the best. You want to figure out why and how they're doing it, and you want to apply it to yourself and your situation. That's a good point. I think the uh, strategy is the, the best thing that we can offer. And so the only takeaway for that, those particular questions um, is ask yourself, how do I get people to trust me? That's pretty much it. I mean, think th th starting with that question will lead you down a rabbit hole of like how to craft your marketing campaign or your marketing messages, all that kind of stuff. If you're always asking yourself, "Oh, how do I get, you know, buyers to trust me?" and that's pretty much it. I mean, to start, that's a great way to start. But yeah, I mean, trust is such an important thing, and I think you know those. I'm really glad you brought up the five obstacles of sale because again, like any business. You know, you have those five obstacles, and you really need to work on them every time with every aspect of your film and your creative work. And with, you know, the trust is the biggest one for the uber independent filmmaker because when we're honest with ourselves and you look at most uber independent films, there's a lot of them, and a lot of them aren't very good. And so you really need to, and that's your barrier to selling your uber independent film is getting people to believe that you're good. Yeah. You're good. You have value. Uh, here's the next question. Um, as I jump over, where to go? I'm locked out. Oh God! Thank God, I'm back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, I got scared there. 
So this question comes from uh, NZ Filmmakers Pod at NZ Filmmakers Pod, uh, New Zealand, all the way over New Zealand. So what tips have you got for a first-time short movie producer hoping to hit the international film festivals? Okay. Um, so to answer this question real quick, this is important. The, the, I'm a first-time short. It's like, I just made a film, I'm ready to hit the international market, so what tips do you have? Again, it's just measuring your expectations. Sort of like, do you expect to get picked up? Do you expect that your film is so wonderful that you're going to get a three-picture deal from a, a producer? Most likely what happens uh, in the world of shorts is just getting a chance to be invited to these film festivals, and if you can fund your travels to these particular film festivals that you are accepted into, is to enjoy the um, but the whole thing when you get to the, but if you're trying to be strategic about how your film is played, especially with shorts, you don't have a lot of say sometimes. They're usually jammed in with a, like a half dozen other shorts, and you don't know don't know necessarily when they're going to play. And a lot of film festivals sometimes you'd be surprised. It might be like, oh, I'm playing at two in the morning, or I'm playing at like nine in the morning on like a Sunday morning, and the theater that they're going to be showing my film is around, it's in a gym. It's not even in a theater. They just put up some chairs and it's in a gym at a middle school or a high school. So the, things like that, knowing kind of how your film is going to actually be played in these festivals, really helpful to, to measure your expectations. And how to properly uh, promote uh, your film while you're at the festival. Because then even though you're at a festival, you know, the festival doesn't necessarily fill the seats. You as a filmmaker still have to show up. Um, it's not unlikely to hear that some people have at their showing. They only eight people sit down at a film festival to see their film. You know, where you could easily get eight people online to see your film. You could probably easily get twenty people to see it. So you know, measuring expectations. So the best thing about the your journey with a short film going to all these uh, international film festivals is what Chris and I were talking about, is really use it as a gateway to get in programmers. Find out who are the decision makers of that festival. Because what happens if you give them like um, kudos, if you send them flowers just saying, I'm just so thankful to have my film, my short film part of your festival, I had just a great time. Or, you know, like here's some things um, that I, I loved about it and, you know, maybe some things that can help to make it better. Trying to build that relationship because what you're what you're gaming on, you're hopefully banking on, is that you have such a great film festival, uh, people, and so on, that when you come back with your next film, they already know who who you are, and say you come back with a feature film. That's how it works for all these people that got into Sundance. Like if they get into Sundance with like a short film, those who who work the um, networking angle to their advantage know that they can come back with a feature film. And I'm not, you know, an, I'm not an expert in any of that kind of stuff, but, you know, Mark Duplis of the Duplis Brothers just recently at South by Southwest had a whole proclamation, a whole a keynote speech where he talks about this. He's like, you know, you make, a, you make a film on your iPhone right now, short film, get in festivals, work the festivals, you know, network, network, and then get your film. He was saying basically get your film to actors, you know, get them fans and try to work that angle. So then you write like a, a film for them, and then then you're able to come back the next year to that same end with a feature, but with also an actor that has like a name to them. So then you have more. You are offering offering value to that um, festival and your career. 
So they every step of the way they were leveling up. And again, if you get a chance, um, just Google Mark Duplass at South by Southwest 2015, and this tremendous uh, keynote speech that'll help you, you know, know what to expect if you're going to a lot of your first film festivals um, with your first short. So. so. Um, and I think this guy in New Zealand, he he or she is at a great point to start to start doing some strategic thinking. So you've got a short film, or you're about to make a short film, and you want to hit some international festivals. So there's a lot of strategic thinking that you should do right now, and that will kind of guide your actions as you embark on this journey. And that is like. All right, one, like, what are my goals for this short film? Is my goal to get, is there a feature that is kind of on the same concept, on the same story that exists in the same world? And is my goal with this short to kind of use it to get the attention of some people who might help me get, um, res who might get me access to the resources to make the feature? Is it just to get into festivals, just to start meeting people, to open my network in that way? Um, you know, is it to sell it? If it's to sell it, maybe a short film isn't, necessarily the best vehicle maybe you want to kind of make expand it to that you know broadcast hour that 45 minutes so it's more market friendly more sellable so there's you know kind of all of so you have that all of that strategic thinking about the short film that you're going to make or have made and then if you're looking at so say you know you're in New Zealand and you want to make some international festivals because you because New Zealand you know it's small a country on the smaller side and you want to break out into larger markets, you want to reach, you know, the the large, the you know, worldwide film market, and so you want to look at the festivals that will give you access to this worldwide film market, and you want to look at what short films have done really well. Who won the grand jury prize at South by Southwest this year? It was uh, Pink Grapefruit, which was actually made by some guys I know, and it's really great. Check it out. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sorry for the plug, but you know, um, kind of organic had to happen. Um, I, w I wasn't even involved in it. I just know the guy. You know, kind of know the producer, but you know, stuff like that. Like, look at so say you're targeting you know Sundance and South by Southwest. You should go find the short films and even the features that did well at Sundance and South by Southwest over the last two to three years and watch them and like take notes while you watch them and deconstruct them and again you're learning from the best and you're learning what these festival programmers are are expecting and what they're responding to and then you can give them that and that doesn't necessarily make your work derivative it's just doing research for the business that you're building the business of you as a creative worker you as a filmmaker yeah definitely some good stuff there. That's, that sounds cool. I can't wait to see it now. Now I have like this a connection. <laughs> um, here's the next question, real quick, as we power through this. Um, present this to everyone. Cool. This question comes from Cinecat at Slinky Malinky. Love that. Um, how to find and build your audience online, and how to market an event screening. So there's two parts to this question, and these links may help. Uh, the first link, actually, over at filmtrooper.com, I have a, um, I'm making a video series on YouTube. I have three videos up so far. It's like how, it's a case study: how to make a movie. Um, is how do you audience? And it's a 15-minute video uh, that goes into watching me, you know, right there online, just searching through Google Plus, Twitter, and Facebook as I target into specific groups and then look for what you know what the 
dialogue they're having and then determining what value you're going to be providing them. And um, the other thing here is you asked about an event screening. And there's another link that you can grab, um, which is uh, Think Globally, Act Locally, the, a film marketing case study. Again, the uh, a case study of what I used to uh, hold a theatrical premiere for my film, The Cube. And the, really what you get out of that is this. In the short of it, when you're trying to build your audience or how do you find your audience, um, as Chris was saying, there's strategically the end result, what you're, what you're going for. Um, so we were using the case study of the marathon runners. So obviously that's easy. You just go to like a, a Google plus communities or Facebook groups and you're just typing in, you know, marathon running groups and you join those groups. At, like you're just spending time listening to how people talk to each other or like what kind of language do they use, you know, or, uh, and then you have to act and you have to ask yourself, like, if I were to make a film for this specific audience, um, what, what's the best film I can make for them? What value can I offer them? And you kind of have to be honest because if you're a fan, like if you're a marathon runner and you're a fan, um, how would you like to be marketed to? How would you like a uber independent film to be presented to you? And what things need to be need to take place to make you want to actually cough up some money? Not only money, but time. You know, because that is probably the most valuable thing that we're asking any of our audience to do is give up time, because they have so many options now to do, uh, to watch and to play video games, to 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 just find entertainment all over the place. So you're you have to present it in such a way that you're asking like I'm just asking you to give up two hours of your life. You know, and you're hoping that, that they get transformed from it. You're hoping that you have a product that's worthy enough, an experience worthy enough, that they're going to get something out of it. Again, the the case study of the room, world's worst movie ever made, right? Didn't matter. The people that chose to go to midnight screenings and be there in the theater, they were looking to be transformed for a, to have an experience to share and a laugh. You know, or just the absurdity of it all. You know about that. So you have to ask yourself as you look into finding your audience, um, you know, are you answering those questions? And the second part of that question is, okay, so now you're ready to put your film out to like a live event. Um, obviously, if you're going to go theatrical, there's great services like Tug or Gather um, without the E um, that help you get your film placed into theaters as long as there's a, a an audience willing to pay you know but the way it works like you can do it on your own is you're gonna if you're gonna throw your own theatrical premiere you that can mean anything it doesn't always have to be in a movie theater you could be at a community center anything you get people together as long as it's an event but like the question is if you don't know anybody sometimes the best way to throw an event is make it beneficial to those people showing up. Uh, for this particular film, The Cube, I was still fairly new to Portland, Oregon, so I didn't know a lot of the filmmaking community. So what I did was there was a, a theater in town. I had to make sure there was a bar across the street that after the event, I wanted to make sure that people had a very close proximity, a place to go and get some drinks because I knew I was thinking about the whole experience. I, I was, was go see the movie and then you had to go find parking you know, three blocks down or whatever it was. So I made sure the venue had ample parking, that there was a bar across the street. So the whole on 
to see the movie was going to be fun because there was going to, I planned events afterwards. But the biggest thing I did, which is what I learned from online, was that you got to have some reason for people to come together on a communal basis. Not because your film is not going to really sell it. If they have, there's nothing to it. There's no names. There's, there's nothing. Just because you made it, it's probably by holding a networking event, I was honoring other filmmakers in town, showing their um, trailers of work they have done, and bringing them together so they can meet each other. At the same time, I was I gave them a silly award. And what you see, like my finger here, this little mug back here, was filled with some candy, and that was my award. And the thinking the thinking was, instead of getting a statue that probably wor is worth nothing, at least they get a free mug. <laughs> and some candy. But the whole point was they brought their audience with them. I got a chance to honor with, uh, with some silly award, but I brought people together. I brought a networking event together. And the cube was just a side thing. So that's something you do with your uh, theatrical networking event. Yeah, right, and I want to... Yeah, um, I'm back. I chromed yeah, out. <laughs> so I'm back again. Um, you know, again, if anyone wants to add value to me, um, tell me how to fix this, <laughs> and I will and I will repay you in helping you with your digital marketing. Um, but I just want to say, like, events are so important. They are so incredibly important for your Uber independent film, and you can do them on the cheap, and you can do them on the cheap, especially you know. Like a lot of people feel hampered by the fact that they don't live in a New York or a Chicago or a Los Angeles. Well, here is one place where not living in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles will help you tons because you can get space for not an absorbent amount of money and you can do you know, an event around your film. You can invite the local filmmaking community. You can invite you know, whatever influencers you have access to and that's something that like, you know, allows you to add value and you know, part of it's managing people's expectations. If you reach out to your influencer and you're like, hey, I want to invite you to my film premiere, like, don't talk like it's going to be, you know, don't act like it's going to be a star-studded premiere at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood, <laughs> California, when, you know, they're screening your film at a dive bar in Vermont. It's fine to screen your film at a dive bar in Vermont, and in fact, you should if you live in Vermont and have a local dive bar, and especially if you have a film that's relevant to the people that hang out there. You know, like, I like Vermont. I'm not, you know, don't, I'm not hating on anything here, don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's just, you know, manage the expectations of the people coming, and like, you know, like Scott had for his premiere of The Cube, he had the whole night planned out. And he had, like, you know, so if he managed to strike up a great conversation, he already knew there was a place where he could take these people. And, you know, I don't know how he set it up, but I would bet that he probably went to that bar in advance and knew it wasn't going to be super crowded and super loud and super obnoxious. He might have even called them and been like, hey, I'm going to bring somewhere between 3 <laughs> and 30 people to your bar on a Tuesday night. Like, is that okay? Um, yeah, it's exactly that. <laughs> you know. And, um, you know, so again, it kind of it goes back to, like, that strategic thinking, thinking and, you know, kind of learning this way of thinking of, like, having plans for everything you're going to do and know, like, you know, just because you have a plan, you know, you might have gone to that bar and it might be a Tuesday and you might walk in and there might be someone having, like, a riotous birthday party. <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, now there's a riotous birthday party here. So now, you know, maybe it's not a quiet conversation about filmmaking, but like, it's still your event, and you still have to host it, and you still have to own that, so you're like, okay, like, shots for everyone, we're joining in the party, like, you know, you gotta provide value, you gotta give 
people a good time. And I think, you know, part of that's like coming off the event, like events are unpredictable, be prepared to roll with the punches, <laughs> but events are also super important. And, you know, plan them out, do whatever you can to have a premiere at whatever level is accessible to you for your film and to make it as great as you can make it. Um, and I know that also like throwing events is something that's really terrifying and, um, you know, I'm the kind of person who gets nervous about everything, so I overplan everything. Um, but, like, you know, I know that a lot of people, there's a lot of anxiety around throwing events. Like, is anyone, you know, what if no one comes? Well, there's also a lot of really great resources to learn how to throw events. And, you know, like, again, like, maybe you're not in a major city, and you're like, well, who's going to teach me how to throw events in the town that I'm in? I bet your town has a wedding planner. I bet that wedding planner would love, if you call every wedding planner in your town, I bet you can find one who would love to do a premiere for a movie. And these people are event planners, they're event organizers, you know, kind of thinking that way, especially if your movie has a tie-in to their target market, you know, especially if you have a, a wedding movie, definitely have a wedding planner, <laughs> like plan the premiere of your movie, you know, kind of things like that. Or, you know, also things like, or you're like, oh, I want to premiere my movie, but I don't have any money, I don't know anyone that has any space for me to premiere it, like, you know, all I've got is a movie and I've got nothing else. Well, then you've got to kind of work the phone and you've got to call up, like, call up your local breweries and be like, hey, I've got this really awesome action movie, I really want to do a premiere for my action movie, um, you know, you guys can slap your branding all over it, I'll make you an awesome flyer, you know, you can be all over the Facebook event, I'll tweet at you all night long. Um, but I just need a bar to show my movie in. Do you, as a local brewery, have a relationship with any local bars? Yeah, that's um, perfect. Yeah. You know, there's lots of ways. You can, whatever you need, there's a way to get it. You just have to, you know, it goes back to, like, you either have to pay for it or you have to put in a lot of effort and be creative to get it. Yeah, and don't... So... If you can make a film, you probably can make a wedding video. You could, probably, you know, what I mean. So it's like you could exchange services uh, for people. You can benefit from their their access. So hopefully that helps in terms of building an audience and also setting up your first screening or your event. Um, and is really helpful to try to know the things again. If we're doing like the marathon running example, if you were to plan an event where people get runners or or half off uh, entrance fee to the latest, the next marathon is going to happen in that town, things like that, or you're going to show off the latest technology of shoes or energy bars or, or whatever, clothing. If you make it at that kind of event, target audience would have, there's going to be a greater experience for them. And think about it yourself. What would be the best experience for you? Or think about some of the best experiences you've ever had in terms of going to an event and what, why did that work and what was pleasurable experience? Create that for your own event. So we are in the home stretch. This is the last question. We are have hit an hour and a half. It's a little longer than our normal film marketing Fridays, as I try to keep it to an hour. But this is a special one because we have Chris on as well as. Um, oh shucks, I'm special. <laughs> awesome. So okay, so here it is. The last question is how does online compare to theatrical distribution in terms of a film success and a potential return on investment? Let's see here. Suggestions. 
Let's take so so here the big the big gorilla. Um, what animal is it? Is it an elephant? Yeah, elephant in the room. But the reality is, it's like, well, how does online performance compare to a theatrical performance? And unfortunately, we only hear the, those films that get successful theatrical run, and then um, and then translates to online. Where a lot of us, if we're especially the uber independent filmmaker, we are working in the world of direct digital distribution. So we are working online. And so I've been working on something uh, that's that's definitely needed in the film industry in the community because a lot of filmmakers want to know what are the true numbers of video on demand, and we have to first clarify the difference between video on demand and digital downloads or what is known in the industry as electronic sell-through. The reality is, Uber independent filmmakers they don't play in the world of video on demand. Every time you see something like VOD or VOD numbers or VOD success or whatever it might be in the in the blogosphere, uh, it needs to be very clear that those numbers are related to uh, cable video on demand and those deals are being struck with formal distribution companies. So the Uber independent filmmaker cannot judge the performance with their own performance because the only thing you can deal with is uh, digital downloads and electronic sell-through. And I'm going to show you um, as I throw this up. Or, oh, I had this thing. I'm going to show you something I've been working on. I haven't released it yet because, well, I just haven't released it yet. Um, but this is a report. Hopefully you guys can see this. I'm going to share this as it goes over here. Okay, you should be able to see this. All right, you guys see this little report? Okay, so the highlight it for you guys. Um, I'm working on a Film Troopers video on demand and digital download report, and this is dated back in February 22nd, 2015. And the reason to use this report is, first off, is understanding the terminology, and I won't get into it too detailed here. But this report here shows uh, video demand. MOD, VOD, SVOD, IOD, you're like, what the hell? Um, this means like cable video on demand or transactional on demand, free on demand. There's also subscription cable video on demand uh, like HBO Go, uh, SVOD, which is Netflix, and IVOD, which is or ad-supported VOD, which is like Hulu. So all this stuff doesn't mean anything to us, really, if you're the Uber independent filmmaker because if you do not have it, deal, uh, companies are not talking to individual independent producers. They're talking to distribution companies. So when you see this terminology used, VOD, it's not being accurate because really what maker um, works in is digital downloads and streaming or EST for electronic sell-through. And again, this is not really part of VOD. This is not part of the numbers that includes iTunes, Amazon, and Google Play, or OTT uh, over the top, which is like media you get through like Apple TV, Roku Box, uh, Chrome, uh, Chromecast, and Amazon Fire and whatnot. But this is, electronic sell-through is really the world of Vimeo and demand, 
X as well. Tunes and to get on Amazon and Google Play, you need to pay a flat fee to an aggregator, not a distributor, but an aggregator. An aggregator is just a service company, so that iTunes does not. The reason being is that iTunes doesn't want to deal with every single independent producer. They only have approved aggregators, and the aggregators are only there to make sure, mostly to make sure that your film product meets the technical specs for their player or their platform. So with that said, if you look at these numbers, I have to see if I can't zoom into this puppy so you can see it better. Okay, yeah. So like the the performance of this this comes from Rentrack in terms of they perform they report the data of a VOD release and then estimated box office. But that doesn't tell you how much a film's going to be ma uh, is making on video and video on demand titles of that week and they show you the box office return and then the digital downloads um, this is EST this is like the stuff that is not cable VOD um, John Wick of this particular week uh, the uh, Keanu Reeves film was the number one film but it doesn't give you any data it doesn't show you any numbers so you're like well how the hell are you supposed to analyze this data you know so this is my guess things and and I don't get too there, but this will give you just better a better gauge of how to determine performance between theatrical and VOD. So something like Dumb and million dollars in the box office. You can and Chris could attest to this in terms of the web metrics, the conversion rate. And uh, Jason Brubaker over at filmmakingstuff.com wrote this great blog post like. In two, five years ago, about conversion rates, that in the, the Uber independent filmmaker really needs to understand these. So, Dumb and Dumber Two makes like eighty-six million dollars. The conversion rate, you got to, you know, we can guesstimate that it's anywhere between five to fifteen percent, meaning that their estimated VOD return, the revenue is going to be anywhere between four to thirteen million dollars. Now, because um, Dumb and Dumber Two was a studio film with uh, high-profile stars, it's going to have a higher conversion rate. Something like a small film, like The Best of Me, um, made about $26.8 million box office, probably has a smaller advertising budget and is only going to earn about maybe 1% to 8% return. And so their estimate of would be about anywhere from 270000 So the, what we can gather from this is like nowhere in... Nowhere in this case scenario is like like a movie making X suddenly making 300% on VOD. There's always going to be uh, you know a much less conversion. And the the case point we can look at is like the the film The Interview. The Interview had all this press going around it. It had all this controversy going around it, and it, it made around 41 million dollars uh, on VOD space. The film cost like 75 million, so you know it was kind of a loss. But that if um, that had about a 30% conversion rate, so you can see if like if that is the case study of like the highest, the best possible case scenario in terms of performance on VOD based off all this press that goes around it is only maxing out about 30%. Um, then you can get, you can guesstimate that some of these smaller films. Based on either their studio film or the you know the ad budget or the impressions it gets online, you can gauge like a conversion rate anywhere from sometimes one to eight percent, three to ten percent, or five to fifteen percent. 
Pitt's tank movie Fury um, is probably going to get a little bit more because he's international and he's a bigger star, so it's maybe like 10 to 20%. But the whole point is nothing in this these case scenarios or these scenarios is a film on VOD suddenly making this is what it made on the box office return. Oh, if you go to digital downloads... Oh, wait, before you move yeah, on yeah, yeah. from conversion rates, not to interrupt oh. because you've got a lot of great stuff going on <laughs> here and I'm super excited about this report um, because I'm the kind of nerd who's like, yes, numbers and spreadsheets. <laughs> um, like, so when you look at these conversion rate numbers kind of to give people who maybe don't have a little bit of a marketing background or a digital marketing background, like a frame of reference, when you look at um, e-commerce conversion rate, the standard conversion rate for basically selling anything online is a little bit below 3%. Um, and when I work with companies, um, kind of no matter what, the when I work with consumer product companies, kind of across no matter what the consumer product is, if we're selling it online, I always shoot for a 5 to 15% conversion, um, which puts us you know, kind of a little bit above the middle of the conversion rate uh, bell curve, and anything over 15% conversion rate online is, you know, like a unicorn. It's incredibly rare. And so, you know, when I looked at those conversion numbers, the first thing that jumped out to me was Fury is doing 10 to 20%. They are doing markedly better than anyone else at convert at their conversion there. So I would look at Fury, I would look at like why is Fury converting so much better because conversion, you know, it's literally where the money's at. So if you only have, you know, so much effort and so much marketing dollars put into something, you want to figure out what's converting, what's converting for other people and how you can really focus your efforts on doing the things that are converting because those are the things that are putting money back in your pocket. Right. It's a American comedy, so it's not going to translate as well uh, overseas on the video on demand, demand side. A proven genre that still holds true, uh, even based off, the, again, this interview I did with Scott Kirkpatrick um, over at Mar Vista Entertainment, he says, like, still action films do well, and Fury is a war drama, but it's marketed as an action film with Brad Pitt. So that's going to, the odds are that that conversion rate is going to be higher. Again, we're using like sort of um, the interview as like the height. Like if they get a 30% conversion rate, if that's the highest you can go, and you know, Chris was just saying like in normal metrics and uh, marketing metrics, 3% or like 10, 15% is good, you know, and anybody getting above that, you want to analyze why. Fury, because it's an action film with a big star. So it's going to get a bit bigger, higher conversion rate. Um, let me go back real quick to the, the slides. So um, as we go into this, this is the numbers that people probably want to know more, which is the world of the Uber independent filmmaker. Again, you're not going to be working in video on demand world unless you have a, a distribution company. So you're going to be dealing with digital downloads. And so you probably want to know, like, well, how do you sort of guesstimate... Um, you know, the conversion rate for digital downloads. So this this particular week, you know, John Wick um, was a top digital download, everything down to, like, Big Hero 6 and Gone Girl and, you know, all the way down to Boyhood. Um, 
And so this is a weird metric, but it's it, it's the best educated guess we can come from this. If you base it off the trailer views, and you do this by just going online and maybe just uh, adding together all the trailer views that it has on YouTube and other sites, um, from the tr the number of impressions that these particular films get, John Wick had like 12.8 um, trailer views, Big Hero 6 about almost 30 million, Boyhood had 14 million trailer trailer views. You can almost apply the same sort of metrics, the conversion rate, and that's going to give you a transaction number. So John Wick being 12.8 million views, it's not, it was a Lionsgate film, it wasn't like a big budget film, you know, it wasn't in the theaters that long, and it, so you're probably going to guess around like 3 to 10% conversion rate, meaning that that equates about, you know, 300,000 to 1.2 million transactions at an average sell price of 8 bucks, you know, anywhere from $5 rental per digital download or EST side is going to be about three to nine million dollars. Um, the reason something like Big Hero 6 would get a higher percentage, one, it's a Disney film, one, it's a kids genre, and the higher sell price is because um, most most of these type of ch uh, children parents buy it because they need to have repeat viewing. So their price, average sell price is going to be more, uh, yielding a much higher sort of potential revenue. 14 million uh, views. Again, it's a it's a still an independent film, even though it got a lot of Oscar push. Maybe three three to ten percent conversion rate, um, and so you can kind of guesstimate sort of the uh, transaction numbers and a price point between five and ten dollar rental, whatnot, or sale price. So even if I'm way off in prices, if it finally came out and says you know Boyhood made you know 56 million dollars or whatever it might be. Um, the whole point is, it didn't make three hundred million dollars. Like you're not going to see uh, uh, performances of like a hundred to three hundred million dollars on digital downloads. So you to so to to guess better guess where your f film could perform is this these metrics. Like if you have a star and if you have a Lionsgate distribution and with a minimal marketing bu uh, budget and exposure, you might be getting three to ten percent conversion rate. But if you have a big studio um, backing, uh, Big Hero 6, Fury, Gone Girl, we're talking big stars here, you might be seeing a 10 to 20% conversion rate. And this all comes down to this thing here, which is called, what is the 1% conversion rule? <laughs> and Chris talked about like marketing the, the metrics of 3% being quite normal. Actually, 1% in is quite normal too. <laughs> and here are some examples as I zoom into this, here's some examples of the 1% conversion rule in fact in terms of uh, electronic sell-through. Um, there's a film that did very well um, in the blogosphere and on some film festivals uh, called The Layover. It had about 800,000, I'm sorry, 80,000 trailer views. Uh, the transactions eventually came out to be about 800 transactions at an average sell price of $6 and they made $4,800. And this is the URL source where I got those numbers. Um, there's another case in point, Escape from Tomorrow, this film that was shot in Disneyland that nobody knew about, um, um, was acquired by, um, oh, I forgot, uh, John Sloss' uh, company. But it had about you know 1.2 million trailer views, so you can guesstimate that the 1% transaction from that, 1% of 1, you know, 1,200 transaction uh, numbers times $10 gives you about 
dollars, which is what made digital downloads, electronic sell-through, not video on demand. Video on demand will actually yield them a higher uh, return, but they have to pay um, percentages to the cable company, uh, percentages to the distribution company, and so on. This is just straight digital downloads. This is the world that Uber Independent Filmmaker is working in. American, the Bill Hicks story, um, the film collaborative did a really great uh, case study and numbers on this particular film. It had about uh, 795,000 trailer views, and 1% of that is, you know, almost 8,000 uh, transactions at $7 a pop. You know, they earned about $55,000 in uh, electronic sell-through revenue. And again, it's a much, and this link provides a much thorough uh, case study of that particular film. You'll see that it actually made more because they did theatrical. And it also did uh, VOD, but it had a film distribution company behind it. But if you look at the EST numbers, this is what's what it's working. And again, the magic one percent rule, conversion rate rule, is in full effect. And you got um, this film that sort of kind of like looked like a bomb, uh, a Keanu Reeves film, Man of Tai Chi, earned about nine and a half million trailer views, and then had about ninety-five thousand transactions at ten dollars a pop. It made probably under, you know, a million dollars. And again, there's uh, you know reporting the sources here. So by gathering these numbers, uh, I was able to give sort of a, a best estimated guess, a, a, the best educated guess I could, based off the numbers that are coming through um, Rentrack that reports how well certain VOD movies are, are doing versus how well digital download movies are doing. And then for the Uber independent filmmaker to understand, like, you know what? The, the most conservative effort you can use is use the 1% conversion rule, meaning that this bottom line is this. As I go to my face. Based oh. off the number of trailer, oh, sorry, based off the number of trailer views that you get online, you can guess that about 1% of that will turn into people actually buying your film or renting your film. So that helps your gauge and your, your projection. But you're going to say something. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, it's... um. Like again, these numbers are super powerful, and we can't—you can't really, you know—as you look at yourself as a filmmaker, your and you know the business of you as a filmmaker, like your estimate, your one percent conversion rate is your estimated is your minimum estimated return on your investment. So when you look at that one percent, and you see like the guys who did Layover, I saw Layover. It's a you know it's a great film. They made it for seven thousand dollars on a one percent estimate. They lose money, and so you know they have to convert at higher than one percent because they need to make their money back so they can go on to make another film. And it's kind of, it's great to kind of look at this data, which is really important to you as a filmmaker. And you're like, all right, you know, if I spend five thousand dollars making the cube. And I know at least one percent of the people who watch my trailer are going to watch it because that's what all of you know the data on e-commerce tells me. I know that at least um, fifty thousand people have to watch. I'm sorry, five hundred thousand people have to watch my trailer. So that means that I have to, you know. So now I have a benchmark of how much effort I have to do to hit my return on investment point. Um, yeah, and that goes like for these numbers are really important, and also pulling the data from it. And when you look at those, and you're like, oh, like you know, at the one percent level, um, these films lost money. Let's look at what they did. Let's look at what their marketing message was, and try to extrapolate from that marketing message why so many people watched the trailer, but only one percent bought the film. 
Yeah, definitely. And yeah, we're hitting two hours, man. This is probably the longest. I don't know if anybody stayed around, but the good thing is that it'll be recorded so people can watch it. And then I'm, I actually add annotated um, chapter links so you can quickly pop through the different topics we talk about. So it'll be a little bit e easily digestible in uh, later events. So um, as we wrap up, we probably should wrap it up. Um, let me just do my little bit of housekeeping here, which is um, this. The one really thing to take from all this is be focused on what results you want. Chris just said it. It's like if you know that you need to make X amount of sales, then you that will lead you down a rabbit hole of what proper questions you need to ask. If you want to have a great experience at a film festival your first time around, be very clear what you want to Those will set you up for asking the right questions that lead you down a rabbit hole so you can come up with the best strategy. So with all that said, if any of you are stuck trying to make um, then I encourage you to go over to freegearguide.com where you can get a free equipment list of everything I use to make my feature film for $500 with no crew. And so there shouldn't be any reason that you should be stuck with yours if I can make something that small as well. Because that way you can at least look at what equipment was used, find inspiration, and then say, you know what, I can make something in my own house and get going. Again, at freegearguide.com. I want to say, uh, have Chris say any last parting words. Oh, hit your, hit your mute. There you go. Sorry, I was um, having trouble clicking mute. But, yeah, I, I just want to say uh, thanks a lot for having me on here, Scott. I hope that I was able to provide some value to you and your listeners. Um, you know, obviously I'm a big fan of what you do at Film Trooper. I like the attitude of not letting anyone say no, and I like that you're kind of sharing your learning with me and the rest of the world. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, anyone out there who wants to talk to me, um, you can find me on Twitter at It's Chris Reed, I-T-S-C-H-R-I-S-R-E-E-D. Um, and, you know, like, reach out to me. If you have a question, ask. I do my best to help out when I can. Very cool. Uh, any latest projects that pop up for you? And um, as other marketing questions pop up, I'll definitely, uh, you know, tweet you <laughs> and hit you up on Twitter. Thank you for everyone who stayed around. I know it's, this has been an epic session, but it's I can't submitted questions, and we I hope we did our best to answer something to give you guys enough value to move forward, to have a much bigger perspective um, with that knowledge is power in your hands so that you know what to do with it moving forward with your film project. So we wish you all the best and we'll see you next time. And you can just follow me over at, at Film Trooper on Twitter or just go to FilmTrooper.com and that's it. We can wrap it up here with my closing screen and say good night. There's a pause. So dramatic. <laughs> Lots of dramatic pause. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks everyone. Signing off.